At this point, invite you to turn to that passage of Scripture that we read just a few moments ago. John chapter 2. And from verse 12 through really to about verse 22. So once again, uh, the issue of Scottish independence has hit the news uh, over the last week. And we learned maybe it was Monday, maybe Tuesday. Around that time, we learned that the referendum question has been altered. And there's been a huge amount of discussion about it, huge amount of debate. You know, was the question biased? How should it be phrased? And eventually, ultimately, it was decided to simply ask the question, should Scotland be an independent country? Well, this morning, let's start with a better question than that. Let's start this morning with a far more uh, important question. Let's start with the most important question that we could ever ask and answer. The question that has been governing our series looking at John's Gospel is that question, who is Jesus? Or, let's change it. Let's put it another way for this morning's purposes. Let's ask, who do you say Jesus is. Who do you say Jesus is? Okay. Let's get to the text. Let's get to where the, the power is. And let's think about our first point this morning. Or really our, our, our first question uh, that we'll ask. These are three questions that we'll look at this morning. This is the first one. <coughs> Excuse me. What does this sign here? What does it tell us about the character of Jesus? This temple clearing. What does it tell us about the character, the character of Jesus? Now, folks, I can't in any way prove any of this. But I reckon that if we were to conduct a survey throughout England, a survey of what uh, people think of, When they think of Christianity, I reckon we would get lots of similar responses from people. Because I reckon there is still a kind of lingering vicar of Dibley idea when it comes to Christianity. That when people think of the Christian religion, they think of nice middle-class English villages. They think of church fets and they think of women's guilds and maybe a vicar cutting about the village on his bike dog collar that sort of thing and unfortunately and regrettably people think of Jesus in the same sort of way don't they many people think of Jesus as just a kind of nice figure from history you know a do-gooder, a really nice, nice chap. I suppose a kind of 
religious Colin Firth type guy, you know, who uh, appears in a story and says a couple of nice things and does a couple of nice things and then he's away again. But look at this sign. This sign, the temple clearing, it takes that ludicrous caricature of Jesus, that ludicrous, pathetic caricature of Christianity, and it absolutely shatters it, doesn't it? Because look at the sign. Jesus here is raging. He is absolutely furious, isn't he? Think about it. Never in the Gospels, never do we see our Lord just so active, do we? So kind of energetic and so irate. So why? Okay, why? What is it, friends, that has got Jesus so angry? Why is Jesus so angry? Well, to understand that, we have to get to grips with when this temple clearing took place. When it took place. Now, it took place, we're told in verse 3, at Passover time. And that's important because that's when thousands... Tens of thousands of Jews, all male Jews over 19 and 20 years old, they would leave their homes and they would descend upon uh, Jerusalem. They would travel there to celebrate this feast, the feast of uh, uh, Passover, and to worship at the temple. And that's why people are selling animals here. Okay? Okay? They're selling animals because these Jews would have gone to Jerusalem to make sacrifices at the Passover. And it would be entirely impractical, wouldn't it, to travel miles and miles and miles to Jerusalem with cattle and with goats. So that didn't happen. The people, the Jews, bought these animals for sacrifice when they arrived in Jerusalem. And that's the same for the money changers too. Have you ever wondered why there's money changers here? Well, the people who came to Jerusalem, they would have needed the local currency in order to pay the temple tax. Okay, so it takes place at Passover time. But we've also got to see that Jesus is angry here because of where these merchants were. Okay, of where uh, these sellers were conducting their business. Because these guys, these merchants, they have actually infiltrated the temple complex. They're inside the temple courtyard. And the problem with that is that this was the place that Gentiles gathered to worship God. You got that? The, the sellers have set up stall where the Gentiles gather to worship God. Now, the Jews, of course, the Jews were allowed inside the temple proper. The Jews were allowed inside the, the temple building, but the Gentiles weren't. They had to gather outside. Okay, still part of the temple complex, 
but they had to gather outside in the temple courtyard. So part of the reason that Jesus is so furious here is because there is Jewish opposition to Gentile worship. Okay. But there's a further, and there is a more significant, and I guess, as we read it, and as we read through, a more obvious reason that Jesus is angry here. And that is because of the sheer irreverence these merchants and Jews show for the worship of God. Think about this. This is the temple, isn't it? The temple. This is the place that is supposed to be devoted to the worship of a holy God. But is it? No. It is devoted to making money. This is the temple. This is a place that is supposed to resound to the noise and to the chattering of prayer. But instead, what do we hear? We hear sheep, we hear cattle, and we hear bartering. There is no reverence here for the holiness and the majesty of God. So hopefully, friends, overall, we're getting to grips with the fact that Jesus is angry because the world has infiltrated the dwelling place of God. The world has infiltrated the dwelling place of God. So, at that, I ask you this morning, could the same thing be said of us? Could it? Has the world infiltrated the dwelling place of God? You know, when we come to church in the mornings, or at night, hopefully, our worldly concerns more prominent in our minds than spiritual concerns. Even this morning, as you come to church, as we all gather together like this, are we concerned thinking about Jesus Christ? Are we? Or are we thinking about study? Are we thinking about our work? Are we thinking about business? Friends, we've got to let that stuff go. This is the worship of God. This is the worship of God who is holy, a God who is majestic and pure, a God who must be revered. So who is Jesus? He is not a religious Colin Firth. He is not just a do-gooder. Yes, he is sinless. But he is one who is passionate about the worship of his heavenly Father. Okay, let's move on. Let's consider a second question together. And that second question is this. What does this sign tell us about the identity of Jesus? We've seen what it tells us about the character of Jesus, but what does it tell us about the identity 
of Jesus. The identity of Jesus. Well, if you were here last week, we looked at the first sign of Jesus, didn't we? We looked at Jesus turning water into wine. And we noted in that sign that it pointed to the fact, it revealed the fact that Jesus is divine. You see, Jesus could just will that water into wine. There was no drama and theater. He could just will it. And it revealed him to be the son of God. But what about today? Okay, What about this morning? What about this sign we have? The clearing of the temple. What does that tell us about who Jesus is? What does it reveal about Jesus' identity? Jesus' identity. What do we learn? Well, in 2009, folks, I got tickets that I had been looking for for years. <laughs> I got tickets uh, to hear a female vocalist by the name of Natalie Desay. And uh, I had always wanted to hear Natalie Desay in concert, largely because my brother and my dad... They just kept banging on and on about how great she was. So I was desperate uh, to hear this woman sing. And the concert was while I was on holiday with uh, my folks in the south of France in a town called Orange in this most beautiful Roman amphitheatre. And I remember sitting there uh, just before the concert started. And I remember thinking, I just couldn't believe that I was there, that I was really here. You know, I'd heard so much about Natalie Desay. And the build-up to this, I had read everything that I could find about her. And I'd heard everything about her from my dad. And I couldn't believe that at long, long last, I was going to see her, that I was going to hear her sing. And then, then... All the lights went out in the amphitheatre. And you could hear in the distance a set of footsteps on the stage. And then one solitary spotlight shone. And it shone on the stage. And it revealed this person that I had been hearing about for so long. The spotlight revealed Natalie to say, here she was. And friends, one of the main reasons that John records this sign here is because it illuminates, it reveals this person that we have been hearing about all the way through the Old Testament reveals the long-promised Messiah. So how? How does this temple clearing reveal Jesus to be the Messiah? Two things. Two things. One, his passion. 
Jesus' passion. Jesus' passion reveals him to be the Messiah here. Because if your Bibles are open, just glance at verse 17. Verse 17. Do you see it? Do you see the words of the disciples? What's happening there? Well, the disciples, they are confronted with this scene. You know, they are confronted with Jesus clearing out the temple. And what happens? They recall Old Testament scripture. They see Jesus clear the temple and their minds go to Psalm 69 verse 9. Where it says, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house. And that psalm, Psalm 69, it tells of a servant of the Lord and his burning desire for the honor and respect of the temple, of the house of God. And that servant, who was that servant in Psalm 69? It was David, wasn't it? David. A prefigure of the messianic king. It was David, a forerunner of Christ. You see, Psalm 69, folks, it is prophecy of one who is going to come, a royal figure, and one who is going to demonstrate a zeal and a passion for the temple of God. So come on. No wonder the disciples are prompted to Scripture. No wonder when they see Jesus clear the temple. No wonder their minds go to Psalm 69. Jesus' passion, his zeal for his Father's house, it illuminates and reveals him to be the Messiah. But I said there was two things, didn't I? Two things that reveal Jesus to be the Messiah here. The first one, passion. But the second one, the second one is the suffering that accompanies the sign. The suffering. Because this verse in the Psalms, it doesn't just talk about zeal, does it? Look at it, verse 17, zeal for your house. How does it end? Zeal will consume me. It will consume me. You see, Psalm 69, it is about that servant of God. It is about one who faces humiliation, one who is opposed, and one who is absolutely hated because of the devotion that he shows to the temple, to the dwelling place of God. And then, folks, Just consider this sign and ask yourself this, okay? Ask yourself, what does this sign mark? What does this sign mark the start of? Well, in John's gospel, the clearing of the temple, it begins and starts the opposition And the suffering that Jesus is going to face from the Jewish authorities. So I don't know. Are the pieces coming together for you this morning? Are you beginning to see this? 
Psalm 69 speaks of one who's going to come, show such devotion to the temple that he is going to be hated, that he is going to be persecuted. And we see that perfectly fulfilled in this sign. Friends, the suffering servant is here before us in this section. The sign, it speaks of the arrival of the long-promised Messiah. But okay, okay, that's fine. But how do we apply this? What is the relevance of that, this revelation of Jesus as Messiah? What is the relevance of that to you and to me this morning? Well, it all boils down, friends, to that question that we started out this morning, that question, who do you say Jesus is? You know, do you recognize the identity of the person in this sign? Do you recognize Jesus as the Messiah? Do you recognize him as the one that all Scripture that the whole Old Testament has spoken of. Do you see that Jesus is that seed of the woman that will bruise the serpent's head? Do you see Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb? Do you see him as the great high priest? Do you see him as the one that Ruth's kinsman redeemer and Jeremiah's righteous branch are pointing to? Do you see that? Do you recognize him? Because what's for sure is that the Jewish authorities didn't, did they? They were so blind. Because what happens here? Jesus provides a sign of his authority. And what do the Jews ask him for immediately? They ask him for a sign of his authority. They were blind. They just did not see it. But friends, can you, as the light in the amphitheater gone out, can you hear those footsteps? Maybe for the first time this morning, is there a solitary Beam illuminating who Jesus is for you. Can you see him? Do you recognize him as the Messiah? He is the one who had zeal for his father's house like no one else. And he is the one who would suffer at the hands of these authorities. Why? He suffered so that you might live. He is the Messiah, and that is revealed here. Now, last week in the sermon, I mentioned a monument in France. Remember that? For those who weren't here, it was a monument that uh, I stumbled upon in France, it marked, a monument to mark the midpoint, the geographical midpoint, the whole country of France. Okay, so let's go back there for a moment. Let's go back to the midpoint. 
Because this, the third question that we're going to ask, the third thing that we're going to look at this morning is this central point. It is the key thing from this clearing of the temple. So the third question is this. What does this sign tell us about the mission of Jesus? Okay? The mission. We've seen his character. We've seen the identity. Now the mission. Well, what do we see in in the, the miracle last week? Well, we saw that by turning water into wine, that Jesus was marking the end of the Judaistic purification system. Remember that? He was marking the end of that system. And by turning water into wine, that he was beginning something new, that he was beginning an age of grace through the wine of the new covenant. And here, as he clears the temple, that point and that transition is being expanded, okay? It is being built upon and drawn out. Because, folks, please hear this. Please take this away this morning. In this sign we have here, Jesus is marking the end of the physical temple in Jerusalem. As he clears the temple, he is marking, get this, he is marking the end of religion. The end of religion. Because, you see, Jesus responds to these Jewish uh, uh, authorities here. He responds to this opposition and he gives them what one commentator has helpfully called A spiritual riddle. Did you pick up on that as we read through? It's in verse 19. A spiritual riddle. I'll read it. Jesus says to the authorities, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And what Jesus is doing there is he is, as John points out, he is referring to his body. He is saying that his coming death, that it will mark the end of the Jerusalem temple. Now just think about that for a moment, will you? Just think about the events that accompany Calvary. What happens at the cross, folks? Jesus dies. What happens next? The ground moves, doesn't it? There is an earthquake. And the physical temple in Jerusalem, it moves. And the curtain inside that temple, it tears, it tears from top to bottom, it tears in two. Friends, in these words, destroy this temple. Jesus is pointing to the end of that physical temple in Jerusalem and all its significance. And then we end this morning just doing what we did last week. 
we looked at the flip side of this sign. Because this is not just about an end of something. It's not just about the end of the physical temple. It is about something new. You see, Jesus doesn't just talk of destroying the temple. He says that he will raise it again in three days. What does that mean? Well, folks, this is Jesus promising that in dying and rising again, that he is establishing a new location for worship. That in dying and rising again, that he is the new location of worship. The old temple is gone and now he is the meeting place of God and man. The old temple is gone. He is the altar. He is the temple high priest. He is the sacrifice. He is the place where the people of God gather. He is the place of prayer, of rule, of authority. He is the place where we see the Shekinah glory most clearly. Friends, by dying and rising again, Jesus brought that temple to an end. Now worship. Worship's not about geography. Worship is not about ritual. Now worship is all about Jesus. And what does he do to help us see that? What does Jesus do to help us understand What does he do before he speaks of this transition and change to worship? What does he do? He provides a sign. Do you see it? Just like the Old Testament prophets used to do. He provides a vivid illustration of the point that he's about to make. He provides a vivid illustration of the meaning of his death and resurrection. What does he do? He clears the temple. He purifies the worship of God. Friends, forget about, will you? Forget about outward religious practice, okay? Forget about rules and regulations and traditions. Forget about legalism because none of that is going to change and cleanse your heart. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the one that Scripture points to. And he is the one who has suffered for you. So fall to your knees, people, and worship him. Worship God as he should be worshipped. Worship him in spirit and in truth. And worship God in and through 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.